Saca pinza. Hello and welcome to the Point Black series of IndyCast. My name is Abhishek and I'm thrilled to be joined on the call by a person who has spent 26 illustrious years in journalism, more than 20 of which have been at The Economist where he's covered a range of subjects like science, trade, energy, environment. He's written about European business from Paris. He's edited the Britain section, the business pages, and he's been The Economist's foreign editor since 2009. In November, he wrote a fabulous special report on America's foreign policy. I'm talking about Edward Carr here. Ed, thank you very, very much for joining in from London. Great, great pleasure. Very nice to be with you. Thanks, Ed. And I've been reading a little bit about you, and I read that as a student, you were studying science at Cambridge University. And did you ever imagine that many, many years later, you would be arguing why an American president should or should not send troops to a country or things like that? No, I had absolutely no idea. I thought I was going to be a scientist or possibly the outsider science journalist, but foreign affairs came to me late and is all the more interesting for that. Did you put your hand up or did they say, why don't you just go out there? We need you to cover this war or some such thing at The Economist. How did that happen? It actually happened because I spent a lot of time writing about the financial crisis and I was there looking after our economics and finance and business coverage right at the beginning of the financial crisis. And I saw it germinating in the housing market and I saw it spread through the financial markets to the banks and then to companies. And I could see it going to politics and I thought, well, I've had possibly the most dramatic few years in business and finance that I could imagine. And I think this thing is going to spread to politics. It's going to have really interesting political effects over the next few years. And I quite like to sort of follow it along. And so I, I asked if I could possibly move to cover world politics because I could see that the consequences of the financial crisis would show up in all sorts of interesting and unexpected ways in, in foreign affairs and politics. That's quite amazing because you did your specialization in 18th century French chemistry. The subject perhaps is so obscure that when I typed it in Google, it did not auto-prompt me. Uh, 18th century <laughs> French and it was literature, arts, but not chemistry. <laughs> yeah, they, the French were very good at chemistry in those days. They probably still are, actually, but they were particularly good just, just around the time of the revolution, which was, uh, which was what I was interested in back then. Right. I'm, I'm sure you would have stumped your parents and friends the way your career path you know, took <laughs> off. And coming to the special report, Ed, when we exchanged emails a few months back, you were in the US and you were about to start researching and writing this huge subject about which there is so much written about. Historians have dedicated their entire lives. Uh, Wikipedia has a 9,000 word entry on it and almost everyone has an opinion on this. So how did you even get started, where did you begin, and did it drive you nuts? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you're absolutely right. It, it's one of those subjects that's so vast that right from the very beginning, you have to acknowledge that you're not going to be able to cover every aspect of it. What interested me about it was that I felt that as sitting in my day job, which is looking after the foreign affairs coverage here at The Economist and, and writing about the way the world is shaped and the way the world is developing, I sensed a very conflicted America, America that was at once lacking in confidence, but also angry at the way it couldn't get what it wanted from the world. And that under President Obama, it somewhat tried to withdraw, but a lot of Americans felt uncomfortable with that. So I wanted to try and get at this question of how capable America still is of, of shaping the world, if it can still play this role that it played after the Second World War, particularly when it was responsible for the rebuilding of the global order. Was it still capable of 
maintaining this order, and so how, and, and, and if not, why? I think when, when you start off with these enormous subjects, what you really need to start off with is a question. And my question was that. Right. And in the last few years, things have been in a state of chaos, especially at home. The investment banking industry went bust, the fiscal cliff, the federal government shut down, even uh, the little goof about the online health insurance exchange where people had trouble logging in, the wars that Obama inherited from Bush. And yet you argue that, and I quote, after a dreadful decade abroad, Americans are unduly pessimistic about their place in the world. Uh, What makes you so optimistic when probably the popular opinion is otherwise. Yes, it is a a counterintuitive position and it's one that it doesn't feel emotionally right. But one way of thinking about it is this. It seems to me that America's expectations of what it could accomplish in the world, of what foreign policy is like, were pumped up after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And you had this, what's often called a unipolar moment, a, a moment when there was one dominant superpower, which a French foreign minister called an hyperpuissance, and a German writer called an uberpower, this one power that was utterly dominant. And I think during the 90s and up to September the 11th, 2001, the attack then, I think America had this growing sense that it was the only power around, and broadly, what it said went. And then you had the, well, the difficulty in Afghanistan and pretty much the disaster in Iraq. And America suddenly discovered that it couldn't get what it wanted. And at the same time as this was happening, you got a sense that China, which has absolutely been through a remarkable few decades, was breathing down America's neck. And I think the pessimism emerges from this undue sense that all the aspirations that America had taken on board, the rather hubristic aspirations that America had taken aboard after the collapse of the Soviet Union, have been disappointed. And I would argue they were always unrealistic. They were based on a short-term moment when the Soviet Union collapsed. It had given Americans an unrealistic expectations of what could be accomplished. They then were shattered by the unexpected difficulties in Iraq, but also in Afghanistan. And then, lastly, against the background of the rise of China, and and actually, the rise of China is something that I think is going to take decades. It's not here yet. And even if the Chinese economy surpasses the American economy in GDP, China's still not able to project power in the way that America is. So, in a nutshell, why I argue the U.S. is unduly pessimistic is that its sense that it can't do very much is based on a very unrealistic reading of the recent past. And a galloping ahead to the days when China is dominant, which might be 30 or 40 years away. And frankly, an awful lot can happen in 30 or 40 years. So you make America sound like a student in a classroom who wants to do so well that he or she has set himself or herself very unrealistic uh, expectations. And you're saying that it's not a failure, but you just have been expecting too much of yourself. Yeah, I think Americans thought it was too easy after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And they've taken the the inevitable knockback that they've had after that hubristic decade of of the 90s. They've taken that knockback far too hard. And there's a sort of paranoia about China that I think is, is getting ahead of itself. Right. About China, too, you said economic heft is not the only prerequisite for somebody to be a superpower. Where do you think China lags behind in other areas where you think countries will not settle up to it in spite of the fact that it outpowers or outnumbers America in GDP figures or other economic-related variables? There are a number of ways in which the sheer size of an economy doesn't neatly map 
onto geopolitical capacity. GDP per capita is a measure of the technological and human capital that, a, that an economy has. And China's GDP per capita, is, even when it matches the U.S. economy in absolute size, is going to be about half America's. So that's the first indication is that, that China may be sort of sheer weight rather than the technological and human capital sophistication of the economy, which will still lag. The second is military. I mean, the U.S. military spending, uh, annual spending, is as much as the next 12 or 13 powers combined. Many of those are U.S. allies. And that, even military spending, doesn't really capture the military capacity. America, despite having had those difficult wars, is really honed to fighting. It's, it's, a, it's extraordinarily impressive operationally. China, thank goodness for, for everybody, really has, hasn't much experience in fighting, and it's untested. And then, lastly, is soft power. America's soft power position is complicated. Obviously, it lost a huge amount of goodwill in the world because of the war in Iraq and, to some extent, Afghanistan. You know, all the problems of gridlock in American politics don't look too good either. But in spite of that, I think America still has something that other countries seem to want. Students flock to America. American culture is still dominant. If you look at American brands, American universities, American science, uh, I mean, America still is the world leader, and China cannot match it yet and, and won't be able to match it for decades on that. And then one last thing is just appetite, really, for foreign engagement. The fact is that, that America has constructed the prevailing world order after the Second World War, and it's expert at using and maintaining that machinery. China not only is less expert at that, but it's also consumed by the very difficult job of keeping the Chinese economy and the Chinese game going. That's going to be very difficult for the next few decades. So I, I think there are lots and lots of reasons why China's economic matching of the United States will not for several decades mean translate into geopolitical dominance. Right. And you also mentioned about some of the inherent advantages that America has. And one of them is security, where you, you say that it doesn't have to worry about who is going to attack it at night, because it, in your words, it has friends to the north and south and fish to the east and west. That's not the case elsewhere. It makes America a good ally. I mean, if, you, if you're Vietnam, for instance, when you're, you see a rising China, America is a very attractive ally because it's fairly remote. American warships have to go home, ultimately. That, I think, is also a, just an absolute advantage. It doesn't have to worry about its own defense. It can be out there in the rest of the world. It's got huge domestic security. And yet, in matters relating to you know, foreign policy and wars, America also has been very shrewd in pulling off you know, one-off events that can change the way the world looks at you. For instance, once Conan O'Brien, who is a stand-up comedian there, he joked that you know, tonight President Obama and Mitt Romney will debate foreign policy. Pundits say that it will be close, but uh, it will probably go to the candidate who wore the T-shirt, I killed Osama bin Laden. <laughs> uh, and so, so does, does, does America get away with some of its actions abroad because it likely pulls off such moves from time to time? I mean, America can still do things like the mission against Osama bin Laden in a way that other countries can't. It has obviously all those strengths. But objectively, some things have gone against it structurally in the way the world works, and it has, it has to grapple with those. And I, and I think the really interesting question is not has America got the potential 
still to be, uh, for many decades, the country that makes the weather in foreign affairs. But it's rather, has it got the will and organization to be able to carry that role off? Now, just, just take a couple of examples, uh, a sort of regional example first, and then a more global one. The regional example is the Middle East. For many years, uh, American foreign policy in the Middle East was rooted in relations with some pretty autocratic regimes, and Egypt is the best example of that, but it's also true of Saudi Arabia and, and elsewhere, Bahrain and a number of countries. I think the, the Arab Spring showed you how vulnerable that arrangement was to popular change. It's been very, very hard for America to reposition itself, especially coming on the back of its role in Iraq and the damage that it did to America's standing in the, in the region. Uh, it's sort of the opposite, actually, of what in Eastern Europe. When Eastern Europe broke off, off from the Soviet Union, that was a gift to the United States because the United States was immediately the liberator. It was the country that people aspired to. What's well, the opposite in the Middle East? The United States is, is associated with those unpopular regimes and all the dirty deals that had to do with them. And that, I think that leaves it, not only is the Middle East chaotic, but it leaves America with a very, very difficult role to play there. And I think you know, there's been undoubtedly a decline of influence of America in the Middle East. I don't think that's so much a reflection of America's inherent decline, as the declinists in America tend to say. It's a reflection of the inherent complexity of the Middle East and the way that, that place has changed. Even if America was as strong or stronger than it had been, it would still find it hard to influence the Middle East. And then let me take a global example where I think America has a challenge. And that is that the world has changed. The BRICS are countries that have a greater weight in the world and absolutely reasonably and understandably expect to make their voices heard and to be taken into consideration. And that's a big change from you know, the 1960s or the 1970s. These days, the BRICS and the emerging markets need to be heard. And America has to play its diplomacy slightly differently. It has to be more consultative. It has to be the leader and shaper and persuader. It can't just instruct people what to do. But would America have behaved differently with a country like Syria 10 years ago, where it had a little more say or didn't have so many problems back home because the economist and you have been an advocate of hitting Syria hard? Yeah, I think, I think um, if the United States had not been in Iraq, then there would have been military action. The pretty disastrous experience in Iraq has given Americans a distaste for getting involved, particularly in the Middle East, and particularly when Islam is involved. I, I think it's a delicate and difficult subject, and it's hard to prove scientifically. But my sense is that after the experience of Iraq and, to a less extent, Afghanistan, typical, non-political, ordinary Americans think that it's a, a thankless task to go in and try and sort out countries where radical Islam is a problem. I just don't think we have an appetite for that at the moment. And I think that will remain the case actually for a number of years. And this brings us to the point where why are the wars or counterinsurgency, as you say in your report, they are dragged on for many, many years and it's hard for a conclusive end to these contests. That's right. It's always been true of these sorts of conflict and then the reason is that they have to be fought very locally. There's a, a famous example that Petraeus, the American general, used to give about the, the sort of insurgent arithmetic, which is if you go into a village with 40 fighters in and you kill 10, how many fighters are left? 
Well, the answer is very unlikely to be 30. It could well be 50, in fact. And if you're successful, it could be 20. Because all your actions have consequences locally and they may recruit people to the insurgents' cause and they may frighten or drive people away from the insurgents' cause. It depends on how you behave. But these battles have to be fought very locally and everything that's involved is highly political and highly complex. It's very, very hard to go into a country like Afghanistan and to start trying to sort things out because you are crossing the fault lines of um, decades-old tribal and personal rivalries and you get sucked in on one side or the other. It's a very, very difficult job. And I, I think that the lessons of insurgency that America learned very painfully in Vietnam had been forgotten and have now been relearned at great cost. Right. In matters relating to national security, where do you think America should draw a line? For example, you wrote a leader on Snowden controversy that took place and then there was the German chancellor's phones that were tapped. To many, it might appear that these are grave transgressions, but for others, it must be business as usual as long as you're not caught because it concerns the security of a nation. The Snowden affair has been bad for America's image in the world. There's no doubt about that. When the security chief was asked how many plots the mass collection of metadata had exposed, he gave a number and whittled it down. In the end, it turned out to be sort of one or two. And this thing is done at huge expense and at some intrusion, and it's not really clear what it's achieving. In the same way, I think that the American NSA needs, actually quite legitimately, should have the capacity to be able to spy on whoever. That's it. Its job is to be able to do that if necessary. What seems to be need to be foolish is that this was being done in a routine way of an ally for no particular benefit, and as we saw, potentially at quite a high cost, not just in Germany but in Brazil, where Dilma Rousseff's phone was being bugged, in Mexico, where ministers was being bugged, and, and we've seen in Indonesia where Australians were bugging phones and it's cost them It's another dimension to what I was saying before, where countries like India and China, Brazil, uh, expect slightly better treatment and I think deserve better treatment. And America needs to understand that it's part of its role as leader is better. It's easier to exercise that role if it sort of works with countries as far as possible and shows a certain amount of collaboration with them. And in all this, uh, you've dedicated one chapter or one article on fracking. Would that be a bonus that nobody expected, the discovery of shale gas? And how important is it to America, given that more shale gas would mean that much less reliance on oil, and hence Russia and those countries can be kept at bay? Yeah, I I did a short box on that because I thought the whole fracking revolution told you. A lot of people do, particularly in America actually, do think that energy independence suddenly means that America is not vulnerable to what happens in the Middle East. I don't believe that's true at all. You know, oil in particular, gas is a local market, but oil is a global market. And and if oil prices go up because of some political disturbance in the Middle East, they will go up for Americans too. So it's not really, in my view, that the Middle East becomes much less important. The Middle East will remain vital. It's rather what fracking tells you is that there is a huge dynamism to the American system and that uh, a place that, that feels down in the dumps now and is worried and depressed and doesn't feel able to do anything very much is quite capable in three or four years' time of feeling really quite strong again. 
it's it's sort of evidence of my thesis that the pessimistic mood at the moment could clear and should clear and could do so rather more quickly and with more ease than many people might think. It it feels inevitable right now. I don't think it needs to be inevitable and, and indeed will be inevitable. Right, and that would possibly be good for the world if the U.S. does well. Do you feel that America's dominance is important, given that its policies do not intrude upon other countries and traditionally it has been conservative when it comes to needling itself in other people's policies? It does get out of there once it gets in. So that attitude perhaps will serve well for the rest of the world. When one's considering this question, I think you have to be clear about what the alternatives are. Let's just think for a few minutes about what the alternatives to a sort of American-dominated international order would be like. One is there is no one dominating the international order. I think that that is a very unstable world because I think it's a world in which regional powers are testing the limits of their power and their ability to expand. It means it's a world in which there's a lot of uncertainty about exactly where China's sphere of influence begins and ends. And it's unclear for smaller countries how much they can depend on anybody. The scope for miscalculation and the consequences of miscalculation leading to war, I think, are, are much higher in that world. So the one world, I think, is, is a world where nobody, nobody dominates. And that's a world we may be heading to in, in the wrong, but I think that's quite an unstable world. The second kind of world is a world where another power dominates. And let's imagine that is China for a minute. Well, I think a Chinese-dominated world, given China's values and China's views of the world, is a less attractive one for most countries than an American-dominated world. Because although I know that there are plenty of examples of, uh, of American foreign policy going wrong and American abuse, of course there are. There are bound to be. It's a hegemon in an imperfect world with people with imperfect and sometimes incorrect and immoral designs. Of course that's true. But broadly speaking, if you look at America's exercise of power and its maintenance of a world order, it's pretty benign. And it's pretty hard, in my view, to imagine another country exercising that power in such a benign way. That doesn't mean that I'm an apologist for America. It doesn't mean that I think America does everything right. Of course it doesn't. But I think the alternatives are clearly worse. So in my view, the best interest of the world, if we want prosperity and if we want peace, is for the system that America helped construct after the Second World War, the system of international law of the United Nations, that that system continues and that that system is maintained and underwritten essentially by American power. And that's why I think not only is it a fact that American power is stronger than many people, particularly in America, think at the moment, but I think it's a good thing that it is. Thank you, Ed. Thank you very much for your time and for beautifully summarizing it in the end. Abhishek, thank you. Very nice to talk to you. Thanks. And, and Ed, before we sign off, would you humor me in a quick rapid-fire round that I have quizzed some of your colleagues and friends? It won't take more than two minutes, I promise you. You just have to say the first thing that comes to your mind at the end of the question that I have. Okay. Uh, okay. This, this sounds like a, some sort of psychoanalytical exercise. I'm, I'm very worried about how I might, what I might be about <laughs> no, that's to not, reveal. Not at all. These, these are answers that you probably know because you've been at The Economist for maybe 20, 20 years. Isn't that right? Yeah, about that, that, yeah. So here we go. Okay. How would you describe in one word The Economist's editorial view of the world? Skeptical. Great. Daniel said liberal, but that was five years ago. <laughs> different times. What is your message for a few who opine that The Economist is pitched at an American audience because of its high circulation there? 
No, our, our job is to cover the world for all citizens of the world. And actually, I think we find that economist readers in Hong Kong, Paris, and New Orleans have more in common than two people sitting next to, other, sit next to each other on the Paris metro. Nicely put. Who said this? I used to think, now I just read The Economist. No idea. Who said that? Oh, he said. <laughs> Who was it? This is Larry Ellison of uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. As an editor, could you name one journalistic liberty that your correspondent takes and you'll be willing to overlook or pardon any liberty when he files a story to you? Um, I tell you what, I, I, I think that journalists, this, well, this is not one word answer, but I think journalists have to do, they have to be brilliant reporters, have brilliant insights and to be able to express themselves in a striking and memorable way. You never meet a correspondent who does all of them, but I think that being excellent in one or two of those is essential. And one such liberty that you will never pardon in a correspondent? The one I have no time for is someone who says what they think they ought to say rather than what they think. <laughs> all right. And if The Economist were a cartoon character, what would it be? <laughs> Lucky Luke. Ooh, and why would you say that? He's the cowboy who can shoot faster than his own shadow. That's a good one. And the final one, could you dig back in your long career, one of the biggest compliments that you might have received in your stint at The Economist, given that The Economist doesn't have bylines, and thank God it does for special reports, so we know who writes them. But <laughs> any, any <laughs> um, compliments. Yeah. Mm. I think often, actually, the, the biggest compliment someone can pay to you is they say they can say, I, f I finished your article. I think ah. that's, the biggest, that's the biggest compliment you can get. <laughs> You're being modest yet again. Thank you, Ed. You've been very kind and very sporting. Thank you very much for this. For doing it was a great time, Arashik. Take care. Good luck. Thanks. You too.